Hello, everyone, and welcome to our new podcast, Timo and Julian Talk Philosophy. As you may know, I am doing work with Julian since a long time, and we are both interested in academic topics. We have now decided to do a podcast together to bring discussion about important topics around the world to you. We want to focus on academic discussion and bring insight what you may want to know about the academic standpoint on topics that are very important in recent times. In the same way, we want to talk about European identity today as Europe, though it is a continent which works together in a lot of aspects, there are still many fragmented identities. Welcome to today's discussion. Hello, Julia. Hello, it's great to be with you. And I think the topic that we both choose for today is uh, very wide in a way, but we will try to highlight some, some of the major points, you know, that are, um, we can basically do in a limited time podcast. Uh, when it comes to um, identity, um, I think there are a lot of like um, misconceptions and usually nowadays we tend to see identity as being very linear, especially when we are talking about group and national identity. We will focus more on like national identity and ethnic identity, not so much on identity at the personal level. I think to get our viewers to the point that they know what it is actually about, what is identity, Julian? I mean, what do you think is the main point of identity? Identity is basically, uh, we can say what identity is and what identity is usually made up of. But when we are uh, when we are having the discussion of what identity actually is, we can usually um, connect more to the fact that the, the way in which somebody presents itself and the way in which uh, a group chooses a certain way of presentation and certain elements that makes that group to be different from the ones that usually uh, uh, it is in contact with. And also um, when we are talking about identity, we can have this uh, thing in which uh, we have the identity or the way in which I, we identify ourselves and the way in which other identify us. And many times uh, in, let's say, in a more traditional setting, the way in which we identify ourselves uh, is pretty much in a harmonious way with the way in which the exterior perceives us. But there are also many cases in which there is kind of a conflict between how we regard ourselves, how we present ourselves, and the way in which other, basically the exterior, the people and the groups that are outside, uh, perceive our own identity. So this is usually the 
trickier part. And in Europe, um, there are a lot of groups and even like whole regions in which uh, there are all sorts of, let's say, controversies when it comes to uh, how one identifies and how valid one's identity is. So we should put it now first in philosophical conception. So as we have seen, identity per definition is a subjective state, which means there is like no objective identity. It looks like a person, you know, you, many of our listeners have probably heard about constructivism. You know, the world is mainly constructed in our mind, which means we create our own reality because we all have our own mind. So when it goes to identity, we can see that every person has an own identity, which means that it's at first something personal, something subjective, because every subject has an own identity at first. I mean, like something like a personal identity. So it's something that appears in your head because it is the way you identify yourself. And then you have shown to us that there is something like a collective identity. However, as we can see, the collective identity is subjective as well. The thing that you can do is you build peer groups. So we all know this from our schoolyard time. There is like the one group which is playing soccer. There is the other group that is playing tennis and there are the other ones who are just running around enjoying the time. And all of these groups, they have their own peer groups. So you, we can say like we have our own identity. And of course, we look for people who identify in the same way than we do. And that's the one thing, I think the in-group, we can call this in-group, people who have the same group identity than we do. And then you have already shown us that there are a kind of exterior perception. It means like the, how the outside perceives the group and they have their, not only their own identity, but they also have a different image of the identity of the other group. I think this is the very basic thing that we have to keep in mind. Like nation states do not exist by nature. They are created. There are people who created them. And you have like insignia, like flags. Maybe you have a common language or several common language on the territory that are identified as your national language. You have a certain system that you think is most suitable system for your nation state. So all in all, you create identity. It's not that man comes on down on this earth and he already has an identity, like to say, oh, I'm Romanian, oh, I'm German, oh, I'm whatever. So at first, identity evolves over time. And of course, if identity evolves over time, you get different perceptions of your own identity and the identity of others. And of course, there is a potential of conflict because when you shape the identity, it, you ha already have an historical path. And this means that like people, when you are educated, people tell you like, these are the people who are close to us. They are our friends. And there are the other people who you perceive to be a threat to you. So, 
there is already a stereotype, a cliche, or maybe an opinion that is subjective to you about that other group. And of course, because this is subjective, and the you, it's just that you or your group or people of your group perceive it like that. And of course, this, I think, creates a bias. So of course, you have to be aware. When we talk about identity, it is not something naturally given. It is something a subject does. Do you agree to that? I totally agree. And you really made a good point with bringing constructivism into our discussion because the um, let's say the uh, the um, opposite to constructivism is usually essentialism. Basically, the um, idea that a, a group, because we are talking about groups in general and about identity, is some way preset. It is something that is. Um, uh, preset, it is something that is linear, it is something that is not uh, subjected to change. Uh, it is something that is basically in many ways when it comes to essentialism when it uh, in a broader discussion about identity, many times it is kind of correlated to the idea that identity and social behavior in general, because identity also implies a lot of the idea of social behavior and traditions and uh, all behavioral patterns that are usually uh, attached to a culture, which is also identified with a group. Uh, it kind of brings the idea that uh, the behaviors are somewhat biological, that they have something that is, uh, predetermined, something that cannot be changed. And unfortunate, uh, unfortunately, this, uh, let's say, uh, uh, way of perceiving uh, identity and culture many times uh, in history was used uh, to motivate racism, to mo motivate uh, various uh, pseudo-scientific ideas, uh, putting groups in hierarchies, you know, creating groups that are inferior, some that are superior, because when you have something that is predetermined, that is biological, that is natural, as some would say, you basically are saying that uh, no matter what you do, with a group, you cannot change its behavior. And this is especially uh, the worst case when we are talking about groups that were historically, um, let's say uh, they had disadvantages, they were basically uh, subjected to colonialism or slavery or serfdom and so on. Uh, basically, essentialism is all, always kind of, and especially in our present context, uh, is always kind of um, hijacked by uh, various, even neo-Nazi groups and like fascists in general, that kind of try, uh, try to make a very rational, um, they try to bring a rational motivation for their, you know, for the policies that they want to push forward and like to make them, let's say, more mainstream. Um, 
this um, this is very problematic and usually in academia nowadays essentialism is kind of um, uh, it kind of lost favor as uh, it doesn't have many adherents because it has in many ways uh, kind of a problematic past attached to it yes i agree to it uh Actually, to say that biological traits shape us has a huge problem because this, if this was true, it would mean that man has no choice over it himself. He's not, he, he is not free, but he's determined. And this would, would imply that there, that there are like people at the, in the world who cannot act differently because they genetically have to do so because they have biological traits say you have to do it like this but i think the, the philosophical approach has shown since a long long time that the biological idea about this is bad because let's take the muslim scholar al-ghazali he said that it, actually education is an important point and how is, how is education done it is mainly done by imitation it's like he says like Christians become Christians and Muslim become Muslim because you know it's like you 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 are grown up in a certain area and of course you adapt the traditions of like of your parents so this is like Al Asali sees that the reason why Christians grow up as Christians and Muslims grow up as Muslims is because of their education they are taught Everything their religion is culturally learned at one point I mean, it's like uh, we are going back to, you know, the tabula rasa, uh, where every person, when he or she is born, he is basically. He is basically um, born like uh, a blank canvas on which. You know, society through the norms that it imposes, through you know various um, contexts, you know, through the um, various um, uh, groups that uh, he or she comes in contact with, uh, he will uh, he or she will be shaped. So um, I totally agree. Everybody, nobody is basically born either a Christian or a Muslim. Uh, we became Christians, Muslims, or I don't know, atheists or agnostics. Yes. Uh, uh, as we grow up and we come in contact with various schools of thought, through where um, we are, I don't know, assimilated in various educational systems and uh, uh, so on. So it's. Um, uh, the idea, you know, that usually connects biology and identity is always uh, um, used even when it comes to the national identity of certain countries or of certain groups, you know, this idea that we have a common blood, you know, you know, German blood, Romanian blood. Uh, some uh, that uh, basically we are united by something that is not so fluid and changeable as cultures. The, the, the fact that we are a unity 
even when it comes to our genes. And this was disproven time and time again because a lot of when you think when you take the modern nation states of Europe, and when you look at let's say the haplogroups, the and very and let's say even various phenotypes that you find across you know certain countries, you see that there is a huge amount of uh, variety to the point in which there is not a very unifying factor. And yes, indeed, because nation states are also very, very young compared to, let's say, our history. I mean, if you look at history of Europe and you go back for a long time, you will see that the modern concept of nation states is rather a very, very young. Nation states are kind of teenager. They exist for maybe 400, 500 years, but they're not actually older in this in the modern sense. So they are something that did not exist before, but the people in Europe, the, the, the humans in Europe, they existed before. So it, it cannot be that suddenly uh, blood is a uniting factor because the people lived there before and they did not have this factor. So it seems that this, factor that is just chosen randomly to say but, like uh, i think that besides uh, biology has nothing to do with identity but i think this perception because if you will go especially in the nations of eastern europe and the balkans we all know the various issues that uh, uh, are correlated with you know, national identity, especially in the Balkans, uh, you will always see this type of national discourse in which um, basically the perception of the people that their group, their ethnicity was, let's say very linear and uh, very uh, unchanged across the centuries, you know, across different historical eras and various rules that they were under, is usually the product of a certain type of national discourse. And uh, identity is very much shaped through discourse, through language, because in a country, when you have all of the institutions that uh, basically promote the same discourse that is uh, displayed on when it comes to national parades, national days. You, you have uh, the same discourse that governs, you know, the way in which history is presented in uh, school books and so on. It is basically ramified in a lot of aspects. You kind of get this sensation that your group basically you know, was, uh, has an unbroken succession for 2000 years. It, they date back to the days of the Thracians, to the Romans. There, uh, you know, it is this overarching theme of protochronism. Yes, yes. Interestingly, I, I want to point up something, point out something here because to go through a philosophical standpoint, maybe we should also explain the term culture because as you know i struggle a lot with the term culture i made a whole culture critique about this and i want to go a bit about the history of that term 
to see that, that, the, that the trouble is actually, because I think, you know, the term culture, originally you have in the ancient, in ancient Europe, you had a distinction. There was something like natura and cultura. There was something like, at first there's nature, it's the given. It, it, that's the thing that is, that is there and that maybe was created by a divine. And then there is culture. It is that which man adds to nature. It's something like that which was not given by the divine and the humankind found it. And I think the problematic thing nowadays is we live in an extremely culturized world, given this ancient definition. I mean, if you just look around how many things today are man-made from our laptop, computer, smartphone to everything we use, it's like there, there is no more boundary actually like between nature and culture in the sense the ancients held it. And I think that through this, the term culture from time to time became obsolete. I mean, it's my personal opinion, what I criticize. And the reason for this is because the problem is that culture and the way it developed also means thinking in the box. It's like when we have, when we talk about culture, we often have certain mainly stereotypes. It's like, I make an example. When you talk about German culture, then it means that you expect something that's typical of German. But the problem is that in the modern, already in modern times, people became very individualistic. And in postmodern times, there is no more, no more like a collective. I mean, people are so diverse today. They can freely choose their religion. They can freely choose their sexual orientation. They can actually live it, something which was not possible in the past. People are, they can dress like they want. There are no more restrictions on society. I mean, they are in such an individualistic space. So when you think like that, it is typical of German to eat sauerkraut. And of course you have something in your mind like a cultural image, but you actually missed something and that it's today reality. Like you're not sitting in a, every day at the lunch and drink beer and eat sauerkraut. But people have this image because they think that's German culture. And I think that's a huge problem that culture in the sense that it is perceived today is more a stereotypization which empties the word culture because it does not depict a reality anymore. But of course, culture can also have other meanings. And that's the interesting thing because sometimes we say that culture is also something typical of the people there. And I think here again, we have a problem because in the past, you had something like only one TV channel, one radio channel, so people were very homogeneous also in their thinking. But today, people have the possibility to choose the TV shows they show because they are not bound anymore to one TV channel. They have the possibility to watch stuff online. They have the possibility to hear more than mainstream music. So we are so, so diverse today. It's, it's difficult to say that something uh, like, ah, this is German, this is Romanian. This is so, this is uh, so type of culture. And I think for this reason, it's one of the reasons why we actually should get over the term of culture in the broad sense, though I don't think that we have to abolish the term at, uh, completely. Because, for example, 
in uh, in the Chinese understanding, culture makes totally sense because they have a completely different word that has a completely different idea of what we how we translate culture. It's the term wenhua, and it is something like it means not uh, like we understand it from our history that it is that which man added to nature, but they understand it as it, it includes the word one, which means written and literature. It's, it includes the whole tradition of literature, of arts, of everything that uh, uh, certain people identifying, uh, that, it, that they make identifying is a part of, of this. So it, it is So it is more than just the differentiation between nature and culture to them when you hear their term, then it is more like you have something which you identify because of your historical path. It, it is included. And for this reason, your whole, your whole uh, history and everything that makes you to what you are, what, what you do, everything like this, this becomes like your culture. And, and I think this, this, it has another, another connotation than the Western word for culture. So of course we can talk about culture, but at least we have to redefine it. So when we talk about culture now, how would you define culture? In uh, the in because I have more of a background in anthropology, uh, culture usually is uh, split into two main parts. You have uh, material culture and immaterial culture. Um, usually uh, immaterial culture is everything that is related to language, behaviors, uh, tabiets, folklore, um, and material culture very, um, in a very evident sense is everything that is architecture, technology, transportation, um, uh, art, in a, a very broad sense, everything that is related to craftsmanship. Um, you said um, a very interesting thing that nowadays, maybe it's um, to a certain degree, a type of paradox, the fact that um, we are living in a world that we perceive to be very cosmopolitan, very diverse, but in the same time, we also have the perception that uh, the world, and especially the Western world, uh, from a cultural point of view, kind of became flatter, more homogenous. As usually, I talked with many people, and everybody had this perception that when we are talking about the past, and not even like the very distant past, we can talk about, I don't know, what uh, how the world looked before World War II, something like that. And they, everybody has this perception that, uh, uh, especially talking from an Eastern European point of view, that uh, some, somewhat like the world, uh, our society was a little bit more, um, uh, let's say more homogenous. And now it became more, uh, it became basically the opposite. But if, if you look at many of the nations of Eastern Europe and the Balkans, that is actually the total opposite because in the past, and especially you, if, you think, if you take the 19th century, even the beginning of the 20th century, 
actually the region was extremely diverse culturally and it was basically it had a very complex uh, system in which you had regional uh, let's say very small cultural units as a village which was assimilated by regional uh, identities and pan-regional and uh, after the creation of nation states uh, they became like national culture this began to emerge and also within many ethnic groups you had very a lot of branches with uh, clans tribes um, various um, groups that were very different even within a certain group so there was a huge amount of diversity within the groups that were present uh, when um, uh, going back to uh, culture um, when national cultures were created uh, when the national states were basically uh, this coincided with the emergence of like um, national state what uh, became of culture and national culture especially was the fact that uh, you had to standardize a lot of things you could not uh, basically put everything every cultural identity that was present within a country and you would say oh this is our country you had to make a type of selection and to make uh, usually the national national cultures are very exclusionary they so it actually so it actually means that nation states if i understand you right nation states are against the traditional nature of europe and its diverse diverse identities uh, yeah national states usually kind of um, have this um, thing in which all of the identities of the other groups that live within that country being uh, other groups being like minor ethnic minorities or let's say even cultural minority like subcultures as, uh, as some would say it they are basically their national the national discourse that the predominant groups create kind of tries to identify and to set the identity of the minorities to basically um I want to give a very clear example. In many cases in the Balkans, you know, the Balkans was dominated by the Ottoman Empire. And after the Ottoman Empire broke and, you know, national states like Greece, Bulgaria, Serbia, Albania, especially in the countries and even Romania, my home country, uh, the states that were predominantly like Christian Orthodox, they had a Christian minority, uh, Christian majority. They made a nas national discourse in which like the Ottomans and everything that was Muslim or Turkish was something that was alien, foreign. Uh, it was something that uh, brought oppression, poverty and war. And if you look in, uh, in a, a very balanced uh, way at uh, what Ottoman rule was, it wasn't the case uh, uh, as uh, things are painted in this national discourse. So basically the identity of minorities are basically policed by a majority and usually they are validated. This is more desirable, this is less desirable, or, or I like this group more or this group less. And 
basically um, you don't have so much uh, this perception of other groups through their own uh, perception of their culture, but more you perceive other groups and especially the minority through the lenses of the dominant discourse, which is very selective. It's not something that usually takes into account every, uh, the majority of details that are relevant. They usually kind of reduce other identities to stereotypes or to like, you know, storms in which uh, um, there's not, not much substance left. So interestingly, I want to put in another philosophy philosophical concept because it's very interesting to what you said. Maybe uh, our viewers had heard of Francis Bacon, a Renaissance philosopher from Great Britain. And he actually proposed four idols. And when he says idol, it is um, the Latin idola. It's not like we perceive it today. It's not an idol, something positive, a person you look up to, but to him, the idol, it is prejudice. It, it, so he says, mankind is troubled by four prejudices. The first one he identified as the prejudice that is common to mankind, which means we are human beings and we are limited as human beings because we are not ultimate or absolute. So the first, so the first prejudice he says is being a human being is already a limitation. The second, what he says is our education. The second idol says that, um, or that he, he identifies a second idol that people are shaped at their education. He uh, actually calls it the idol of the cave because it's like the people who are educated in their cave, in their family. So that's another thing that shapes the particular human beings. So at first human beings limited because of being human. The second is a human being is limited because of the way that he was educated, it shapes him. The third idol is uh, the idol of the market. And what do you do at the market? You talk, you do gossip. So the third one is language. When we talk about language, we already falsify things because the way we we pronounce them, we already change the thing itself. I mean, everybody knows this. If you talk of a cow, you're not talking really of the thing, the cow, the animal, the cow. You already say a word, so the cow disappeared. It's just in your mouth. It's just the way you pronounce it. So already by the, in the way that you say something, you can create prejudices. And the fourth one, he identifies as um, the idol uh, through dogma. So it's the dogmatic thinking. And when he says about dogmatic thinking, it's not like a religion or something or a belief. It's rather the thing that you think that your belief or the belief that you created is the only right one. And it shapes you too by, in the way that you say that you, so it's like uh, you have found, you have a certain belief and within this belief, everything is true because the way you were educated tells you that it's true. The way you speak or speak about something reaffirms this. And because you are human and you are limited, you cannot get over all this. So I think this concept that Bacon created in Renaissance shows very well today's society. And I think it's something really 
there's something true behind it. So we can, I think you can also include this in a talk of identity at first, because it is something constructed, it is something subjective, it's we shape it through the discourse. So the language shapes it. We might shape an identity through the dogma by creating historical legends, by creating an, uh, uh, an account of how great or how good or what a nation achieved. So, so a belief is also part of the identity, probably. And then, of course, you find uh, a model of education within the identity because you probably, uh, because the way you are educated, you will also continue to educate your children this way. So you have already your, your view about it. So you probably teach your children who is good and bad doubts that you have an objective criteria that they are really good and bad and the top of all this is that it's kind of difficult to break out of all this um you said very well uh, especially with discourse and how language shapes our perception about culture in general i think uh, when it comes to discourse there is like another element that overlaps is the element of power because always when you have power and power especially when it comes to political and economical power you will always the groups that are uh, economically and politically privileged will always have this ability to create cultural standards to impose their own perception about what is good, what is bad, what is high culture, what is low culture, what is something that you should uh, uh, basically try for and something that you should basically not want. Uh, uh, this is especially the case uh, with, uh, uh, as I said, identities because, uh, Usually every group that you will find will never have like this perception that their culture, their cultural behavior, everything that relates to their identity is negative in a way or invalid because you don't, you cannot have like a identity that you from, you presumably think that it is invalid in some way. Uh, you always, uh, when it comes to your identity, you always uh, start from the point that it is valid. Uh, and this can vary in degree on how you rationalize its validity. But when it comes to power and culture, you will always see this idea that uh, powerful groups basically kind of um, shape the uh, cultural landscape of a nation and usually through their own preferences, through their own tastes, they basically uh, create uh, categories in which certain things are should be desired and certain things I should uh, should you should stay away from. And uh, this usually creates this uh, thing in which groups that are more uh, that are poor and they don't have too much economic and political culture, they become very um, segregated. They, uh, they basically are put in a corner and they usually uh, put certain standards 
that are, can never be achieved by certain groups so that there will always be a type of imbalance in which a powerful group will police and will basically kind of uh, say uh, some things are valid and some things are invalid and other groups will always be put aside. Um, this is especially, uh, you can see this, especially when it comes to various forms of art or how certain countries present their culture abroad. There will always be various types of cultural movements uh, within a country or um, let's say cultural areas that will never be presented as being part of the national culture. Because when, when you talk about national culture, as I said, you are making a selection and usually you present things that are, are um, usually seen as being pretty, as being desirable, as being something that you want to imitate. Uh, a very good example with the nations of the Balkans when it comes to this, uh, is you'll never see countries from the Balkans presenting Chalga music as being part of their national culture, even though Chalga is widely consumed by people, is uh, uh, usually you'll always see parties, even with rich people, that uh, always you will hear some Chalga music or Manele in, uh, in the case of Romania. But, so if something is not presented as part of a country's national culture, that doesn't actually mean that that type of cultural manifestation is not very present or widely spread. It's more linked to the fact that a certain group that holds a lot of power, and this usually comes down to the intelligentsia, to the intellectual class of a country, usually invalidates that type of culture and will never kind of give it the opportunity of uh, becoming something mainstream, even though it can have a very big like audience and people that follow it at the end of the day. It's very interesting then. Of course, the important question at this part is whether we can break out of this. I mean, in one way, we probably can, even though we are limited as humans, as we become more and more cosmopolitan, like the way I showed it before, when I said like, okay, we have our European word culture, but for example, the Chinese have a completely different philosophical path of the world culture, word culture. So when we compare the two discourses, like how Europeans perceived it and how Chinese perceived it, we will see that there are things they have in common and things they have differently. And in this way, we might overcome prejudices, like things that we see like, okay, we always thought that it is valid, but we see that, uh, that in other countries, they have another idea. And it is maybe the same valid or more valid uh, and I we can overcome it. also relates a lot with the idea of decolonization when it comes to the study of cultural anthropology. And this is also something that is related a lot to colonialism and power because the majority, the most powerful like media nowadays being from 
websites to podcasts to newspapers to TV channels are usually ones from highly industrialized wealthy nations. And because they have such a huge audience and such a huge funding, they usually spread their message all across the world, even in places in which uh, the cultural landscape is totally different as an architecture. And I think uh, uh, we are becoming more and more conscious that we sh we cannot judge other, um, especially continents and other regions from the world through the lens of European culture. And this is a huge thing, but because places like various countries from Sub-Saharan Africa, or let's say, Central Asia, they are not very economically powerful and they don't have a voice, you know, on the international stage. Usually what we hear of them, of countries like a new, uh, let's say Equatorial Guinea or the Congo, usually everything that we hear about Equatorial Guinea or the Congo comes from Western media. So we are not hearing about them through their own voices, but we are hearing about them through the voice of others that usually never even came in contact with somebody from that country. And this is leaves a lot of room for a lot of misconceptions and uh, even like leaves the way to, you know, prejudice and uh, uh, on the long run. I totally agree to you to that. We really can see this on many, many scales that we, there are a lot of misconceptions about certain countries. And of course, there is also geopolitical strategy inside it. I mean, we, we see it today in, 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 several, in several ways. Also, of course, in the self-representation, you can see today, like, for example, in the United States media, you find again the narratives that you maybe know from Soviet times. I mean, like how they are presented as enemy. And in the Russian media, you find like that that the that the society has to struggle against the West. And it, you know, it's 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 you still you have all these narratives again on the one side, and. Uh, on the other side, if you look into the countries, they are more diverse because on the one hand, you can see the positive and negative things in the US, you can see the positive and negative things in Russia. And of course, you can always just show an image and say like, this is us. Like uh, you can show, for example, a wonderful street in Moscow and say, this is Russia. And people will say like, oh, wow, great. What a beautiful country. But you can also show a poor street and you can say, this is Russia. And people will say like, oh, how underdeveloped is this? And so on. So you can always, of course, when you, you, when you present yourself, you say, this is us, this is what we are. Then you always, of course, try to show a positive image. So on the one hand, you put in the, what you think is positive, And on the other hand, you have prejudices about the others. Um, uh, a very common thing, what you said about the image with like a street in Moscow, I uh, can, uh, this came like uh, immediately in my mind. Do you remember, especially in American movies when they are 
usually having scenes that would be like in Iran and everything that they show is like villages made up of uh, uh, mud huts, you know? Yes. And you know I, that I Iran is has gorgeous cities and it is very well developed. It has like skyscrapers, very good infrastructure. And uh, you know, somebody from the US that only like, you know, uh, only knows Iran from the mass media and from movies would be shocked to see uh, an image from Tehran with like its uh, city center. Because yes, in, indeed, indeed. You know, you know, that's very interesting because some people in the U.S. kind of have the voice that they say to change their rent, all you have to do is to, to go into the country. And I mean, there are some very conservative, some conservatives who, who proposed this, uh, I think, uh, in the, into the last government. And there were also other conservatives who said, we are, we are not in, in conformance with Iranian politics, but don't go in there. And you know why? I mean, it was it was evident because the ones who say go in there, they are the ones with the mud hats kind of in in their in their mind. But of course, there are also a lot there are also a lot of educated conservatives who know that there is a difference between movie and reality. And if you just look uh, look uh, at the, at Iran, what the, what the capabilities, you know that they are a heavily militarized country. So you are not just moving in, and the country is yours. I mean. And that these, these were the voices who learned from previous wars where the where the US participated, like the Iraqi war, where, where, where they saw that it, it's not just like you get in there and you are you are there and it's all yours. So you, you can see that there are also very diverse thoughts. And of course, that those who really dedicate their time to looking about, okay, why do we why do we disagree with them? We disagree with them on their military program, or we do disagree on, 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 on their nuclear weapons program. Then you have to assume, of course, that this country actually is a military strong country, because if they just had mud and, and uh, huts, then they would not have such a program, you know? So, so you can already see it. In, in, yeah, I think the this image, you know, of like villages with the mud huts, which is like, maybe small areas of Iran look like that, but there are also small uh, areas in Romania that are extremely poor. So um, the idea that uh, when you present such images, you usually correlate with this thing that this very hierarchical perception of the world in which like um, wealthy nations that are strong economically and politically, they have a lot of influence, kind of have this um, uh, motivation. Basically, the fact that they are rich and developed kind of is a motive uh, to invade other countries that are less developed. Basically, that uh, they uh, less developed countries are presented as failures, as something that, you know, even uh, if we invade them or not, it's like the same thing uh, um, and basically creates this uh, idea that um, everything that is underdeveloped is uh, not worth, uh, not worth our time usually. And uh, it basically kind of uh, pushes the idea that 
every underdeveloped country is kind of underdeveloped because either their culture doesn't prioritize work or education, which is not the case uh, in many ways, or um, it, basically they try to avoid every other uh, you know, aspect that create huge amount of poverty in other places and especially everything that is also correlated with colonialism and you know uh, the geography of certain countries uh, be, there are certain parts of the world even regardless of how much the culture kind of puts an emphasis on work and ethics and so on you don't have the necessary resources in order to develop a very strong economy. This is especially in places that have a lot of desert, you know, a lot of unfertile land, or in countries that are extremely mountainous. You cannot uh, have the same, you know, basis for development as a country that has fertile plains, it has rivers, it has like a seafront. So, it kind of presents this whole like, uh, you know, contrast between poor and rich as being something more as a type of personal choice of that country to be poor in the first place. So I think because we, we made a really global view now, and of course we wanted to focus on Europe and European identity today, we should summarize what we learned about identity now. So at first, I think we made clear that identity is something subjective, something constructed, and the way identity is given to others of our in-group is through language, through the discourse, and through language and through the discourse, we are able to shape the national identity in the way that we want to without actually having the need to present an actual reality. So this means that we might, that on the one hand, we have a very diverse society today and we don't have them just in one place, we have them everywhere in the world. Um, there are everywhere there are people today living in, in, in different conditions and they can choose themselves in most places how they want to live. That's the one thing. On the other hand, through the historical pathway, we have a certain stereotypes and we normally used to classify it in a cultural way by saying that is typical of their culture. And this way we continue to give the to give on the stereotype by saying what we were taught or what we thought to see like the depictions in movies like the way people talk about a certain place in the media and this thing so in this way we have an idea about the identity of another country without having an actual idea of reality because it is at first just subjective. On the other hand, today we have more means to get over our 
constructed views that are transmitted through education because we have internet and we have the possibility to research things on our own and to check on whether the things that we learned are really the way we were taught to them. And this way we can also find in a, in a political spectrum different views because there are like some people who have researched that a place is different than it was maybe thought. And there are other people who still have a certain image that is widespread in the society as we made as example with Iran, where, they, where on the one hand, the country is highly militarized. And of course, had, if a country is highly militarized, it also has a certain development and infrastructure because otherwise you cannot, uh, you cannot uh, uh, stabilize this country without that it breaks out in chaos. And on the other hand, you also see that, that there are cities and places that developed um, so that the image from the past or how it was traditionally transmitted is not actual anymore. So that we can say that identity can be grouped into parts, the self-identity and then self-image in which we always use to classify things that we think are worth to show to others. And we have the identity about others in which we usually have our common knowledge and prejudices about a certain place. So now that I think this is clear and was shown globally, and also the fragmentation of identity was shown on a global basis so that a person from one place and from one political milieu does not have to have the same opinion than another person from the same place and political milieu because people are, are have the possibility today to check facts, to research, to develop themselves independently. Now, I think the question is, of course, how did all this change or shaped Europe, Julian? Um. Yeah, when it comes to Europe to make my final idea, um, I think that nowadays we usually have like two different situations. We have the Western side of uh, the continent, which is which became and is kind of going uh, forward with a more cosmopolitan, you know, model of culture. Uh, a more internationalist uh, in some ways. Um, and also you have the um, thing that you in the West, you have more nations that were colonial powers. So they had um, type of contact with cultures that were very different from theirs from uh, earlier point on. And you also have the Eastern side, uh, which is, it's let's say as uh, in its teenage years when it comes to developing its nation national identity you know when puberty comes and we become very alert and we are more volcanic in our reactions this is kind of how i see like in very uh, in very simplistic terms, the way in which Eastern U Europe and the Balkans is nowadays, everybody is 
a little bit more touchy about their national identity. We are very defensive. We are very insecure in many ways. Um, but I think that as time goes on, things will kind of um, remediate and uh, we will get to a certain maturity that is highly needed. On the other hand, we can see the fragmentation in Europe itself. We can find it first, of course, in the Balkans, where Yugoslavia split apart in many different countries, like you have Croatia, you have Slovenia, that's the one thing. And on the other hand, you have nations that are today struggling today, like um, the Kosovo, which is caught in between Serbia and Albania. And you have like Bosnia and, Mon uh, Bosnia and Herzegovina, of course. I mean, Montenegro is also there, but they, they are they don't have such such a struggle such as for example bosnia and herzegovina where you have like three important parts or like three ethnic groups that are in attention so on the one hand we have seen that things are getting that identities stabilize and on the other hand we have seen that identities get fragmented and that new states evolve out of the Balkan of out of Yugoslavia in, in the Balkan. So what yes, I totally agree. And I think this uh, what you exposed um, kind of summarized uh, our discussion. I think yes. we made uh, we went through a lot of points and we tried to give our opinion, uh, which is, you know, different from uh, anthropological and philosophical point of view. I want to thank all of our listeners for um, tuning in and uh, listening to what we had to say. And uh, we hope uh, to meet again with you in our future podcasts. Yes, I hope so. Thank you, everyone, for listening to us. And I think we gave an important input in thinking about reshaping Europe by thinking of stability on the one hand and the narrative on the other hand, because the way that Europe stabilizes or destabilizes also depends on not only on the objective hard facts, but also on how the people who live in Europe perceive these Acts and through the facts and the subjective um, subjective feelings, new realities are created. And we can, on the one hand, of course, we want um, reality-based politics. But on the other hand, we have to ask, like, what is reality? Because we all have our own identity. And with our own identity, we also have our own subjective perception. And this is, of course, something which, which opposes the objectiveness of politics. So we can see here that politics can have a different impact concerning on how you perceive your identity and uh, also how much you question different identities. Thank you very much.